our bodies perceive an existential threat, the threat of feeling incompetent, or the threat of getting a poor review, or the threat of not knowing what the answer is, our bodies perceive those as threats in the same way that they do a physical threat. Life in veterinary practice can be stressful, but could you be underusing your own genius to manage it? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders community online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today, Carolyn Coughlin talks to us about our inner capacities for strength and how these map onto our personal and professional lives. Coughlin is co-author with Jennifer Garvey-Berger of Unleash Your Complexity Genius, Growing Your Inner Capacity to Lead. In it, the duo explain a paradox we all know. The life we've evolved to live can be unpredictable, but our inner geniuses get hijacked in uncertain times by our body's stressful response to uncertainty. Oh boy, complexity sounds hard, but no, Carolyn wants you to think about complexity not as hard, but... What makes something complex is that there are many aspects to it, but there are so many interconnected parts and human systems are the best example, the most familiar example to most of us. There's so many interconnected parts and each part can and often does behave in unexpected ways. Then when you put all of those together, they're interconnected, that the unexpected is happening all the time. And another definition is that if you change one thing, it can be a very small thing, it can have no impact at all, or it can have a huge impact and you don't always know what's going to affect what. I often, when I talk about it now, I talk about it as just it's unpredictable, uncontrollable situations. And it's not that you can't predict it because you're not smart enough or you can't control it because you're not good enough at controlling. It's because by definition, by the very nature of the thing, it is not predictable in advance what's going to happen. So just think of human systems. You know, think of your family. Think of a community, but families are great, right? Because just when you think you have it figured out, something different happens and you inject one thing from a new relationship in the family to a different mood that somebody is in or something that just happened in somebody's life. You inject one little thing into the system and the whole thing can change. So I like that perspective on complexity and life being complex, but I also think our tendency in repetitive relationships, repetitive situations, so at work or at home, our brains are looking for patterns. So patterns tell us this happened before, it's going to happen again. So the complexity immediately, our brains desperately, every second of every day, want to narrow down. So there's that pressure to narrow down the things that could happen so you can make a quicker decision and you don't have to think about it. So our brains are like fighting to like make a quicker decision, make a quicker decision, base this on what happened before. So tell me when you look at this complexity stuff, do you see people when they come to this approach that we'll talk about, do they also, are they seeing complexity or are they stuck in patterns or maybe both are happening? Well, the thing about complexity is that there are patterns. So in a family, there are patterns. In a workplace environment, there are patterns. Um, in weather, there are patterns. So you can identify patterns. It's just that if you start to believe 
that the patterns can lead to predictability, then you're in trouble because then you will assume that you understand exactly how something is working and that it, because it did it this way in the past, that it will happen that way in the future. So patterns are helpful, really helpful. That's one of the things you're looking for when you're working with complexity is patterns. But don't believe that just because it happened this way yesterday, it'll happen that way tomorrow. But this thing about wanting to, you know, shortcut things to find like we use heuristics all the time. This is totally helpful. Like this is not a, a problem unless we believe that these things will are cause predictability and certainty when they don't. Okay, then that presents, so the complexity sounds complex. I see what you're saying about that. The promising part of the title I thought was genius, which promises there's all this complexity. You have to acknowledge the complexity and then, but don't worry because there's some internal genius. Genius feels like a word that gets thrown around typically as there's something already there. You already are a genius. You don't go to a genius to learn how to be a genius. There's things inside you that are already there that can help you manage this. From that perspective, what is the genius part of the thing that of managing this complexity that people may already have as traits, talents, skills? Yeah, thank you for that. Because it often genius is uh, people think of genius as, oh, you're really smart. You know, genius is super smart. And what we mean by genius is exactly what you said. It's this innate thing that we have in us already. And the idea is, can we recognize them and then tap into those things when we most need them? So the genius, I'm going to talk a little bit about this thing called that we call in the book, the complexity paradox, because that gets at the genius is that. So here's the thing, like human beings are, we are actually in many ways built for complexity. We're built for the unpredictable. We're, We're built for interconnectedness. We love surprises. And if you don't believe that, just look at the the things that we engage in voluntarily all the time. Like we love to watch sporting events, right? If sporting events were predictable, they would be not interesting. (laughs) Right. We engage in relationships, in community, in families. We do these things all the time. We are innovative as human beings. When the conditions are right, we create new things out of something that would never be expected to lead to that thing. And, you know, most new innovations are like that. We create art. So there are these these ways that we're really, really wired for complexity. But when we don't choose it, when it happens to us, particularly in today's society, when we're constantly, things are being thrown at us, what happens is that our, there are these two phases of our nervous systems. There's the sympathetic nervous system that kicks in when we're under threat, right? When something needs to be dealt with quickly, we either flee from it or we fight. Generally, those are the two main ways that we respond. And that's really, that's very adaptive. You know, if we're being chased by a wild animal, we want to, we don't want to be, you know, dead. (laughs) Um, So we take some action and, you know, our bodies get into this high alert mode. Our heart starts to race. Our blood is like not in our extremities anymore. It's like it's in the places where we really need it. You know, our digestive system doesn't work that well anymore because you don't need that to fight off wild animals. So we get into this mode, our focus narrows, but then in, you know, in under perfect conditions, the threat goes away. And then we go back into our parasympathetic nervous system mode (laughs) where we are, it's even hard to say, where our bodies are calm and we are, we call this the connect and restore system. This is where we can be creative. This is where we can be present 
and open. And so the idea is like the question is, what are the geniuses that we have in us, many of which show up when our parasympathetic nervous system is engaged? How can we notice what those things are that make us good at complexity and intentionally engage them? Because what we get into this mode where the sympathetic nervous system is constant. When, if we see complexity as a threat, then we are constantly under threat. And then our sympathetic nervous system is kicked in and we're, we're fighting. Or we're, I like to say we're trying to wrestle complexity to the ground or run for the hills to get away from it. And that's tempting, but not that helpful. Given the fact that I've seen some things that I think um, from you that are sort of talking about, you know, the genius or the power of the body, the sympathetic parasympathetic, this paradox you're talking mm -hmm. about makes me feel like I'm at war with my body's responses, which is probably not what you're aiming for. I don't think you're saying the sympathetic system's bad, but I think the fact that it's sort of a default thing for the human body in some cases, or maybe some people's human bodies, it feels bad. So you got to keep fighting against your body. Now it feels like another battle. There's a battle against your body. No, you have to stay calm. I ramp up really quickly and I want to act fast, but I've got to stay calm. How much does the body play into this paradox and these ideas? Oh, the body plays everything in, into this because our bodies have the most primary kind of function of our body is to keep us alive. And a lot of these things happen automatically. Our heart beats automatically. We breathe automatically. The blood pumps, everything happens automatically to keep us alive in the most basic sense. So when our bodies are under threat, uh, we just automatically move into like, you know, you've heard stories about how people can lift things, you know, m many times their weight when they're, when their adrenaline is pumping. The thing is that our bodies perceive a kind of a, an existential threat, the threat of feeling incompetent or the threat of getting a poor review or the threat of not knowing what the answer is. Our bodies perceive those as threats in the same way that they do a physical threat. So just imagine the number of things that most of us experience in a day that can feel threatening to our sense of ourselves, to our sense of well-being, to our sense of our own competence or whatever, our safety, our psychological safety. And that can mean that our sympathetic um, nervous system is engaged all the time. And that's not a good for our longevity, but it's also not good for our resourcefulness in dealing with complexity. So what are some of the things that are internal in people already that are part of their genius that they could accentuate to deal with these? Because I think we're just saying there are physical threats. You are at war. You are being attacked. You are falling off a cliff. Those are all physical dangers. You could die. These other things you're talking about are ego defense or social fears. I don't want to be embarrassed because I don't know something or I don't want to admit to myself I don't know something because I know things. And those things are more ephemeral. So what are the parts of this genius if you calm down, engage the innovation, engage your own? And what are the kinds of things that you encourage people to do? Yeah. I know that's why. There could be like a million entire toolbox. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, I mean, we write about eight of them in the book. And Jennifer okay. and I have now talked to each We've now said to each other, why did we choose eight? That's a lot. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but we did write about eight. We did, we did write about eight. So I'll just pick a few. There's an order to them only with the first thing, which is the first thing is to, we call it our noticing genius. We have to be able to notice what's happening. And if we can notice what's happening in our bodies and our physiological response, that is the fastest way, the most direct way to intervene in a, a sympathetic overwhelm system. 
So there's a couple ideas there that are useful. The first thing I do with clients is I just support them to notice that we can actually direct our attention. It's easy to be on autopilot and it's easy to think that, well, I just notice what I notice. I can't really direct my attention, but all you have to do is ask somebody to like, just like go like that, put your, you know, stick your finger in your skin somehow, or like pinch yourself. Poke your cheek or, and see if you, do you notice that? <laughs> you can see if you notice it, because of course we do, right? And then you can do it by asking somebody to just feel your feet, right? Now, if I ask you to feel your feet right now, where's your attention? Yeah, you can literally, you can feel your feet up against your sock. You can feel your feet against the floor. Yes. Right. And you can practice doing this in all kinds of ways. Like, you know, to practice directing your attention consciously, you can do things like feel your feet, but then ask yourself more specific questions like, what is the pressure? What's the temperature? How are my feet touching the floor? What's that feel like? So there are lots of things you can do, but it's a, it's a pretty basic concept. And it, it does require practice to notice what's happening. And the, the thing that we're asking people to specifically notice is a, a thing that we call an action urge. So when we are threatened in some way, often we have an urge, and it usually we can identify it in our bodies somewhere, an urge to do something, to get out of the discomfort or out from under the threat. And so it's really helpful to practice noticing where in your body do you feel a thing that feels like it's your nervous system, your body saying run or fight or appease somehow. So it's like a literal physical urge to take action of some sort. The thing is, usually the action isn't that helpful. When you're being chased by a wild animal, the urge is super helpful, like run <laughs> or climb a tree or something. But if you don't know something... Could you give an example? I wonder, again, in a situation where somebody's defending yeah. ego or they're worried about social shaming because they worried about making a mistake, what would that look like? Well, there's a person in my life who has done this to me my whole life, so I'm really well practiced. But asking a question, like, have you thought of such and for whatever, whatever, like as simple as, do you know how I happen to live on a lake? Do you know how this lake was formed? And because I have this conditioning from this one particular person that where I felt shamed by not knowing the answer. Now I have this thing that goes shooting up from my solar plexus, up my chest, into my throat. My throat gets tight. And I want to come up with some answer so that I can show that I know, that I've thought of it. It's not even that I know, it's that I've actually thought about it because the worst possible shame is never actually wondering, how did this lake get formed? And so... <laughs> let's say in the workplace, right? Like your, your boss walks in the room or maybe you have clients and your clients ask a question and you don't know the answer. The action urge can be to make something up or it can be for often for my clients, it's to say, I don't know, but I'll find out. And then the person is like racing up, like reading every book under the sun to try to figure out what the answer is. And then all that energy is getting expended on doubling down trying to find the answer. It, oh, this often happens too with people like, you know, the when a, a boss or a person, a senior in an organization walks into the room and says, I really wonder, you know, how many clients we're losing every day? Well, maybe the person, it's just a fleeting thought, but everybody's scurrying around trying to like find the answer. And that takes up, you know, who knows how many person hours of work in the next day or week. So it's the urge to do something to settle the ego threat um, in that case, like the sense of 
I'm a smart person. I should know the answer to this. And I don't feel like I do. So therefore, I need to do something. And you might ask, well, what's wrong with that? And in some ways, on one level, there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's motivating. It's, you know, lots of people get to really rewarded for that. We, like in school, we get rewarded for knowing stuff. But when the problems get more and more complex and there are no knowable answers, the energy that gets expended doubling down, working harder, trying to find answers to things that have no answers, trying to control what people do is just at the very best, it's wasted energy. But at the worst, it creates the conditions in organizations of high stress. It keeps people contained. And when really what you want people to do is to be able to be expansive in their thinking so that they can be creative. So... Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. I mean, in the way you painted it, I can understand someone's defensive response to that would be, well, who cares? It just means I get the answer faster. But hold on, take a beat. You're going to have to ask the more complex question. Does this question, as you said, does this question need to be answered now? Does the person who asked it really care about the answer? Is the question even answerable? Do we already know it's not answerable? And we're going to run down. We've already been down this road before, but we're all going to run off and try to answer this and come back. And it's not going to get us anywhere. Having a bigger picture. And you're right. When you're fear-based, when you're afraid and reacting, it's very hard to stop and be like, let me think about if this is the efficient or the right thing to go hunt down right now. Yeah. And these things just become habitual too. So when I had a teacher one time who said, we're always practicing. So, you know, these things get wired into us. So if we spend our time trying to get out of our discomfort by working harder or rushing off to find the answers or trying to control things, that's what we're going to be practicing. That's what we'll do automatically, no matter what comes at us. And it's just often not helpful. It's often really anti-helpful. So recognizing what's happening, the noticing genius, we call it, is necessary, I think, in order to be able to say, oh, well, hold on a second, I feel that thing in me again. Is this helpful right now? Or do I need to tap into something else? So that one sounds, when you were describing that, I feel like I've never had any, that I love that action urge, that, is, that urge to action is exactly how it feels. And I've heard in psychology, they'll throw, well, we have a, we have an action bias. We naturally, human beings have a bias to, if you have to choose between taking no action in a situation or action, 
They can just roll that the dice are always going to roll and people are going to do something. If they're having an emotion, they're going to do something. So that urge is like profoundly internal and also across the species and in social groups and everything. So they're noticing a completely internal experience, maybe imagining other people are having it too. So they get better at noticing. I totally see why that's the bedrock of this whole thing. So they get better at noticing and seeing when they want to do something. What is the next one down the line or in the group of the other seven that is either relational or really kind of other or group centered? So there are a bunch of things, a couple of things that we can do internally to like, I call them direct nervous system interventions. We can come back to those though. So the relational, well, so this is the one that we call the genius of love. And I was just having a conversation with a client just before this about we were intentionally uh, like edgy with that because, you know, how often do you talk about love in the workplace? Right. And right. (laughs) Right. Right. And we could have called it connection because there's a principle in complexity, like working with complexity, that the magic really is in the connections between the nodes, much more so than it is in any one single node. So it's the way things interact that matters. And if you want to change the direction of a system or the nature of a system, it's really likely to happen in the in the interactions, the connections. So in a human system, relationships are like so, so, so important. And um, I'm way we, with so, love over connection. <laughs> connection is very mechanistic. And so I'm always yeah. I love this word love. Yeah. So I got to hear about this. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that a lot of organizations are coming around to this, at least conceptually, that relationships really do matter for a number of reasons and not just because it feels good. But so if you're dealing with the unpredictable in the unpredictable space, when things are you don't know really what thing is going to happen next that you're going to have to work with, then you can't have a policy and a procedure for everything that could possibly come up. So what you really do need in organizations and in groups is trust. You need to have a way of people interacting with each other that is trust-based and that can also, and that trust-based doesn't just mean everybody gets along. Like you can actually have, need to have differing perspectives that are sometimes butting up against each other. And you need to be able to use those different perspectives productively because when you're dealing with something unknown, something comes up, you can't have really thought in advance exactly how you're going to solve it. So trust and the ability to have multiple perspectives is absolutely crucial. So this is one really, really practical reason that relationships matter so much in organizations. Now, why do we talk about the genius of love? If humans are made most, you know, we're constantly scanning for safety and connection. This is one kind of theory about what human beings are on about safety and connection, you can think of both of those things as love, right? We're born knowing how to love. Little babies have to um, unlearn that. <laughs> if they're ever going to unlearn it, they don't have to learn <laughs> To learn it. they need to un or not love other, that there's no safety there. They need to unlearn, right? Yeah, well, I'm saying like, if to the extent that love is not, doesn't seem innate, it, like natural, I believe it, it's because it's gotten unlearned in some way as we get older, like little babies come into the world with just so much connection and they need, they need their caregivers. And that becomes the thing that we call love. But I I believe that it's love from the very start. The basic question is how does love help bring online our parasympathetic nervous system? How does that happen? I mean, love activates our hormones 
that bring online our parasympathetic nervous system like oxytocin, right? Oxytocin is the love hormone and oxytocin activates our parasympathetic nervous system. So, and we wanna be in the parasympathetic mode when dealing with complexity because in the parasympathetic mode, we are present, we're able to scan, we're able to be with what is, we're not driven by fear, we're driven by what's present. So this is, yeah, sorry, <laughs> there are lots of things about love, but some of them are really practical and easy to get, I think, that you need love, to, you need trust among people. But some of it is just the way our bodies work, that when we feel this thing called love, we are producing biological chemicals that help us be more calm and connected and connected to what's happening right now. I think that's fascinating, this word love in the because normally I think this gets deployed. People are happy, again, in self-help and psychology, therapy, relationships, talking about love of a significant other or love for family, love for children. And then at a little farther stretch, I love my friends. But to love your coworkers, I think whatever that feeling is can be spread so many different ways. But I bet some people, if you talk about the genius of love in their brain, they're like, what could that possibly have to do with the workplace? I love my job and that I like to go to my job. I love my clients. They're very nice people. My coworkers are wonderful. I trust them. But I mean, I don't love them. So if you ever got pushback about love, it didn't work. I know you could go to connection, but what pitch would you make for love? That this is a thing that's happening that's important for these relationships in the workplace. Yeah. So that's such a good question. What pitch was? Because I'm sort of kind of subject to it because I just think it is good. <laughs> yes. So I'm with you. So all I'm doing is playing devil's advocate for the people who are a little wigged out about yeah, love. Yeah. I don't see how that's part of it has to be part of this relationship. So I guess part of it depends on how you define love. And I define love as like a deep curiosity about another person, deep like connection to them in some way. It doesn't have to be, I don't have to like everything about it, about them. I don't even have to like them necessarily, but a, like a finding this deep regard for each person as a good, legitimate human being, like whoever they are, and I'm going back to the word connection, but it's this, this deep regard despite either because of, of, of all the things we share in common or despite all the things that we don't share in common. That to me is love. It's this like fascination with who are you as a human being? Like what, let me understand you better. This all feels like love to me. If you think love means like, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, because it doesn't. Love, I feel like this gets dealt with. So there are religious strands or religious streams that talk about you need to love. And it's usually a command to nobody has to be told generally to love their parents or love their children. But there's these rules in religion and philosophy. Oftentimes the philosophers or the religious leaders will argue you need to love everyone. So what you're talking about sounds like kind of like unconditional positive regard or the thing that comes from religion where that curiosity, that openness, that love of the stranger. So there's specifically in some religions talks about you are required to love the stranger. That is someone you don't know and mm. isn't like you. You need to love them. So what you're talking about sounds exactly like that. Mm. But is that a genius for some people? Their love is tribal and much closer. It's the people they mm -hmm. know. Those are the people they love. And this idea that you could love anybody in off the street or love a coworker who's been there for six months doesn't compute for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say that it's not about who or how many people, there's no like requirement to 
for how much <laughs> love or how wide is spread. It's can we tap okay. into this feeling of love? What does that enable in us? So for some people, it may just be like if you're totally overwhelmed and you're reacting in ways that are unhelpful for whatever reason, think about your dog. People who have dogs, I have a dog. We tend to love our dogs unconditionally <laughs> or right. cats too. I'm guessing I don't have cats. But bring to mind somebody or something that you love deeply. And that activates actually in our nervous system a different state that enables us to be more present. It's like it, it can flip the switch between the threat response mode into a more calm, creative, connected mode, which is really, really required for dealing with the, um, the things that don't have answers things that can often feel overwhelming. So yeah, I would say, even though I talked about all that stuff about how love in the workplace creates the conditions for the ability of people and organizations to respond more fluidly and resourcefully to the unexpected, that's not all of it. It's like, can I connect to my own and activate my own feeling of love because it actually changes my nervous system? I think I have done this without specifically thinking of the visualization, but you're frustrated by someone. So you stop and you just listen more. So you're just trying to put yourself in a frame of mind where just not judging as much, not taking action. Let me sit. Have you tried this experiment specifically? And like you, there was someone you were struggling with. It was a difficult situation. Everyone's being difficult. You're getting frustrated with everyone. Have you tried the thing? I need to think about this person I love and sort of a, almost like a mini visualization in that moment. And did it help? Gosh, I'm trying to pick one. <laughs> 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 yeah, it happened. See, I don't run into that that often in the workplace, to be honest, these days. There are more a few relationships in my life where that, where that comes up. You know, I, I'm going to tell you one about where I haven't really tried it too, but there's a, okay. <laughs> yeah, another, I had dinner with somebody recently that, you know, I do love actually, and we see things really, really differently. And I was, uh, found myself as I was listening to this person playing the same old stories about them that I have had for a long time. And I found it really hard to listen because it felt like, yeah they were telling me the same thing I've heard before. And it doesn't, it just feels really in conflict with my own, my own sense of things. So yeah, I did. In that case, I did many things. I felt my feet. I really paid attention to my breath. And I just listened and really tried to ask myself, what really matters for this person? What really matters to them? And I tried to actually put myself as much as one ever can in their shoes and see the world from their perspective. And it doesn't mean I agree with them and it doesn't erase the frustration, you know, permanently. But in that moment, I really did feel like so calm and the frustration actually went away. So yeah, it really works. I do really try to, I mean, these, all, these things in the, these geniuses in the book all came from our practice, our personal practice and our <laughs> practice with clients. So yeah, we didn't just make them up. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm looking out the window right now at a, at a neighbor's house that's under construction. And um, 
it's been challenging <laughs> and with, yeah. with this person <laughs> and not because the house is under construction, because it's a bunch of things. And I'm, I'm realizing as you asked that question, Brendan, that I have not really put this practice into action with this person. I don't know that it's going to change anything, but it'll change me. So I don't know if it's going to change. It won't change the situation, but it will change me and the sense I'm making of, of it. So... Yeah, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't as well. Unleash your complexity genius, growing your inner capacity to lead is on sale now. But our next episode will be back January 4th. Holiday break. But we have twice this podcast available right now. Coughlin covers how to take your internal genius and focus on others as a leader in the extended version exclusively of our leaders community. Learn more at vedexinternational.com. And until next time, just want you to know, I appreciate you.